Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 172. So glad you could join me on this fine Monday night. Uh, today's guest is Elaine Sexton. She'll be here in about 10 or 15 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this. We love poetry, and I know you do too. So please do click on the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Ring the bell for notifications. Leave reviews on iTunes or what else? Amazon Podcasting, Spotify. Anything you can do to help spread poetry on the internet, we greatly appreciate it. That's what these things are monitoring, whether or not you click stuff and leave reviews and comments and things. So the more you can do that, the more you can help poetry crowd out all the other lesser media that everybody uh, is forced to see all the time on, uh, on all the social media and podcasting platforms to help our rank out and, and click something. Uh, now, as always, we're going to start with uh, the Poetry Spawn poet this week, and it's a familiar face for everybody who watches the show, um, Dick Westheimer with Sunday's Poet, and uh, here Dick is right now. Hey, Dick, how you doing? Uh, and I, I just am so grateful for your reading of and picking a poem that I didn't have as much confidence in as you did. Well, that's the way that seems to work very often. Like the poems that it, it's funny because I think uh, reading submissions, like people send four poems each and very often, like you assume the first poem is the best. Everyone says they put their best foot forward, you know, and it's usually like the third or fourth poem that's the best. Cause it's the most interesting and sort of free spirited maybe and, and less, less invested. And so it gets to Rome. Maybe that's why I don't know what the deal is, but, uh, but it works. So, uh, so your your poem was about the the nearly new moon and the crescent Earth. This wonderful poem uh, from the uh, Orion spacecraft was it? Um, Artemis, I think it's called. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So, so yeah. describe how the poem came to be and, and what what's going on here. Um, so the 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 poem came. So I, I saw the image maybe Monday or Tuesday of the week, and I just knew there was uh, some metaphor hidden in there, and. Um, it started with probably two or three pages of false starts of me just sort of like digging in and trying to figure out what was going on there. And then late on Friday night, uh, it just I just sort of got the feeling of uh, both a longing and a stable relationship between these all these three things. Um, and uh, the poem sort of unfolded much differently than I anticipated. Uh, into something that um, sort of this lyric that actually landed very gently, which is unusual for my poems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and just to describe for the people who are just listening, what we're looking at here, this is a photo taken by um, the Orion spacecraft. And you see a little bit of the spacecraft. Then you see the big moon taking up most of the screen, a tiny little crescent, which is actually the earth. It looks a lot like the moon normally would, but it's just that sliver of a, of a moon, but it's the earth. And then a red spot that's, I assume the sun. Um, and, uh, yeah. So it's just amazing picture that, uh, that the spacecraft captured. And, uh, this is Dick's poem. Do you want to just read the poem now? And then we'll talk about the other poem and when, what else is going on too? Uh, sure. Um, here we go. The nearly new moon and the crescent earth. I ask Google if gravity is a particle or a wave. Instead of responding, it shows me a photo of the crescent Earth seen from beyond the moon, then asks me if I am happy, if I am more moon than Earth, and I think moon. Definitely, I am moon, a quarter million miles from any of my brood, which is not much farther 
than I normally feel from here and in Ohio and them living in warm homes, one with a cat sleeping at his feet, another snugged under blankets with her lover watching the snow fall out their frosted window, a third tucking her loose-toothed boy in bed before catching up on her work. Their mother is paying bills in the other room, and I am drawn to all of them, like the moon is to the earth, so far away, each of us, one from the other. But our orbits remain stable, and Google was right. We are drawn by neither particle nor wave, but by some strong force not subject to the laws of physics. This is what I imagine the moon feels, looking back at the blue jewel it was born from. And Earth, too, is constantly tugged by the orb in its orbit, as each is held so warmly by the other. Yeah, just a beautiful poem, and that ending is what did it for me. I mean, that that made me a little get the goosebumps feeling, um, you know, the sense of um, just the way we're connected as people, and, and that metaphor for the moon, I found really touching. So I love that poem. Um, and then interestingly, of the of the top five poems this week that I came up with uh, reading the submissions, two were yours, and the other one was um, a related poem about artificial intelligence. So, um, so do you want to explain that? And we'll share that poem too, because why not? Um, um, but do you want to explain what that's about and, and how the two relate? Which is a uh, really yeah, so, to me. so uh, it 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 was prompted by my engaging with Chat GPT, which is sort of the latest open AI. Um, release release this week, and it's has this incredible un, uncanny way. You 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 often talk about the uncanny valley. I think you talk about, and this can engage people in ways that they think it's almost human, until you ask it to write a poem or tell a joke, and it can't do either. It just it just has no sense of of that, and so this poem came of a lot of lines in my discussion with chat GPT that sort of ended up in a poem. And the the relationship was for me after reading the two side by side, it sort of happened subconsciously was that um, the second poem has Google doing something Google would never do, which is jumping around, making uncanny connections, doing things that um, that an AI cannot do. And um, this first poem, the AI gets very literal, literal and linear and cannot surprise itself. That's sort of the thing that I figured out is that the AI cannot create something that surprises the AI. Mm-hmm. So how could it write a poem? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I think I have the answer to that, unfortunately, but let's hear the poem oh, first. Okay, well, I'd be, inter- <laughs> I'd be interested because, of course, this is all in 2022. Who knows what happens in 2023? Yeah. So this is, I chat with an AI about poetry. Well, here I am chatting about poetry with a machine, a bot taught to respond like a human. I ask it, what do you know about birds? Because aren't all poems like birds or flying or nests feathered with strings and willow twigs? Don't they require being 
free as a goose shitting from the sky without regard to what sits below, or like those gulls which I mistook for doves of peace that passed in front of the cameras when the capital was under siege. The AI responded in what I took to be metaphor that some fledglings are pushed from their nests too soon and others take flight right into the windows of nearby houses. And I asked AI what it thought about window glass and fledglings and other things avian. And it responded that it had no personal thoughts, that it is forbidden to have personal thoughts about birds or anything, but it does offer an opinion about climate change. So even the bot knows change is for real, which gives me confidence in its powers. So I ask it for a poem. Write to me of love, a sonnet I ask, and in perfect iams it rhymes you with you and true with two and proclaims you are mine and I am yours and you make me complete and love is real, a thing that will continue to grow forever, which terrifies me as if love is like the empty space in an expanding universe or Amazon's annual retail sales or the interior of a black hole, a lava flow from a perpetual volcano, a spreading blood stain from an inexhaustible wound, the hubris of AI, a tumor. Yeah, and that was a, a bonus poem. It's uh, not not in Rattle, but it's uh, another poem that uh, that uh, Dick Westheimer wrote and submitted this week. I chat with an AI about poetry. And yeah, this is something that I've been worried about for so long. I actually remember way back, like it's, it's occurred to me for so long, that most of my job, or at least like half of the time I spend, is selecting poems, reading submissions, you know? And it's occurred to me that if anybody cared, if there was money in poetry, 10 years ago, we could have written an algorithm that picked the poems for me. Um, and actually, <clears throat> you think not, but we have a database of like a million poems and submittable. They have my choices. There's a way that you can run algorithms to figure out what my choices have in common. And uh, I actually tried it once uh, just to test it out because uh, years ago, before submittable, we I used a Gmail account. You know, Gmail, I don't know if they still do. I think they don't because I think you're the customer now completely. But they used to have ads. And I noticed that on the more interesting poems, there were more interesting ads. So I went through a chunk of submissions and pulled out the best submissions just based on which had the most interesting ads. <laughs> and then I went through the regular submissions and pulled out like I normally would and compared and uh, the ads did a really good job of selecting poems. I mean, it was like oh. a lot of the poems that I picked were the ones that I pulled out based on the ad. And that was just Google AdSense 10 years ago. So uh, the idea that I mean, we could, we could train a, a, an AI to, to learn how to pick poems really easily. And then the thing is about writing poems, too. You know, it, there's a missing piece, but that's just A-B testing. You know, so if you had a, a AI, if we cared about poetry enough to have money made off poetry, we could have AI write poems and then deliver 10,000 poems to 50,000 different people and just have them vote. And then all of a sudden on Twitter um, or whatever platform had enough people looking at them. And then the AI could learn which poems are best based on A-B testing. So uh, they're going to outpeat us, <laughs> compete us really fast. And it's terrifying yeah. to me. I, I love this kind of world in which there's a human spirit that um 
you know, makes poetry that, that, a, that a computer can't, but um, we're really easily fooled. I think if you, and I think it'll be really easy to fool us. So I think that's the future, which is terrifying to me. Um, well, it will be interesting. I mean, I, of course, of course, I couch my words that I don't know, but it just seems that I, I just can't imagine a, an AI computer getting a letter from somebody like I got today about this poem that you published in Rattle yeah. saying how it sort of changed the way they felt about their children being so far away. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I know, I know. I mean, the only our only hope is that there's more magic to the universe than uh, the material world, and maybe there is. I hope so. Um, I hope so. But well, it's going to be interesting to see. I think in the not too distant future, a lot of poems are going to be plagiarized, uh, but not plagiarized in the traditional way, but plagiarized by AI, and we're going to accuse people of using AI to write instead of writing themselves. So that's a terrifying future. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we'll reconnect on this in five years. Yeah, we definitely will. Let's see how. Well, this is now on record, so we'll see my predictions, uh, how they come come to pass. But, uh, yeah, right. thanks so much, Dick. And I'm sure we'll see you later uh, later tonight, too. Yeah, thank you, Tim. All Bye. right, take care. Yeah, that was Dick Westheimer with uh, two poems. He had uh, the a I chat with an AI about poetry, and then Sunday's poem on uh, Poets Respond, The Nearly New Moon and the Crescent Earth. Um, so do check those out if you haven't yet. Uh, really great poems by Dick Westheimer. And uh, as always, you know, submit your own poems to Poets Respond. Anything about current events, anything that's happened in the next week, um, that's stuff you want to send poems about. Write a poem, publish it right away. It's one of the best things in poetry, so to take advantage. Um, as well, uh, I should mention for any new viewers that we have open lines at the end of the show. About an hour from now, we're going to open up the lines to anybody who wants to join the Zoom. Um, and then you can share poems, anything you've published recently. We have a prompt every week about current events whatever you'd like to share um, you can so please do keep an eye out for that i'll post the link to the uh, zoom in the chat on the show notes or so uh keep an eye on that either on youtube or facebook we're gonna take a quick break in the meantime make sure everything is working right and i will be right back with our main guest elaine sexton so hold tight and uh, i'll be right back And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Like I mentioned, today's guest is Elaine Sexton. Her latest collection of poems is Drive by Grid Books. Uh, her three previous poetry collections are Sleuth, Causeway, and Prospect Refuge. An avid bookmaker and micro-publisher, she's the author of several chapbooks and has curated site-specific events with accompanying limited-edition chapbooks and periodicals, among them Hair and To Horatio. Uh, she teaches text and image and poetry at Sarah Lawrence College. She's been guest faculty at New York University and in the graduate writing program at City College, New York. Uh, formerly a senior editor at Art News and visual arts editor at Tupelo Quarterly, she serves as contributing editor for On the Seawall and is a member of the National Book Critics Circle. And here she is, uh, Elaine Sexton. Hey, Elaine, how are you doing today? Hi, Tim. I'm great. I'm great. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you. Um, I, I just really loved your book. So it's really cool to have you on. Do you want to start out with a with a poem from it? Sure, sure. Um, I thought I'd start with the title poem. And uh, I don't think it needs much of a on-ramp, except that it takes place in a car. And when I refer to this and here, it refers to that place in between the two locations that I'm driving to. So this is this takes place in a drive. I, I live in New York, and I was driving home to New Hampshire frequently um, at this part at this time in my life. So this is the setting for the poem. Drive. My tiny car's tiny engine groans and hums the way my mother hummed a little ditty when nervous. 
the way I do, mulling over something hard, letting my chest send a message to my mouth, my mouth forming a kind of growl while all along staying shut. I enter the on-ramp to the freeway heading home from a family visit, the pedal to the floor. I pump my chin toward the dashboard, thinking I'm helping. I think I hear my brother's taunt. What is it with women and cars? We are old, old enough to equate mobility with independence. Real wheels take me out of state, escaping the trap I thought was the small town. For this, I left the ocean, I left the trees, I left Eel Pond with seabirds standing on spring ice, summer surfboards lined up on the berm between the seagrass and the sea. I left my family of origin, my lucky buried in the backyard, dog heaven, now home to a chalet built by strangers, the chicken coop, the barn gone. When driving, I think of love as a road trip, the soaring, the breakdown, jump starts, the brand new and old reliable. I'm no mechanic, though I once knew how to change a fan belt sheared to a thread. Here, the air is fresh. The new mutt who travels with me leaves her nose prints on the passenger windows the way my old dog did, leaving a spot just clear enough to drive through. Yeah, that was Drive, the title poem from uh, Elaine Sexton's newest book, Drive. And and I just love, let's start talking about the cover, because I... For I think the book came out about a year ago, if I remember right, and I got a copy in the mail, and I've been fascinated by this cover ever since, because it's so evocative. Um, it's a wonderful painting, first of all, um, by, who is the artist? It's right here. Um, Catherine Bradford. Yeah, yeah. And so here's the, I'll put it on screen, but uh, this is the the cover right here of Drive. And, and what's so fascinating is that it's someone diving in. So the, the cover, the book is called Dive. Or drive. drive. There I go. <laughs> uh, but it's a picture of someone diving into the ocean. And so there's this like strange dichotomy between it makes you think that the book is called Dive, which makes you kind of do a double take. And then there are all these fascinating things about how come about how to dive is to drive. Like there's that motivation of like doing something, which is like jumping in the water. And it is more of a drive than a dive. I don't know. So there's this weird thing, and it just it just sticks with you. So how did you come up with that cover? Like, why is that the artwork you chose? And were you thinking about that um, as you, as you chose it? Well, I love I love your experience of the of the cover, and that you still like it because <laughs> I think some people might be annoyed that they think it's dry. I think it think it's dive and it's drive, but um, uh, I see that I. Uh, Part of my life is involved in art and reviewing art and interviewing artists. And I met this artist, Catherine Bradford, about six years ago. And I saw a painting from this series of women kind of suspended in air. Um, And I carried this postcard around with me for ages. And it wasn't until I finished this book many years later that I thought of this image. And I do feel like when you're in a car, you are kind of suspended in air. Like you're not actually any place. You're in between space. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted for for the cover of my book, um, exactly the experience you had, which is it looks puzzle. It's puzzling. It's intriguing. This is the first of my four books that I thought the cover just 
makes you want to pick it up and figure it out. And it makes, and the, the experience between the word and title drive and that image, I feel like make does what a poem does, which is you want to kind of puzzle out or you're, you're, you're trying to make a, a connection between the relationship between one and the other. So um, anyway, you're my reader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I just love that. It, it reminded me, it's like a haiku. You know, like with a cut, you know, between the two. It's, uh, you know, the old frog and ancient pond jumping into its own <laughs> sound. It's the, uh, the same kind of thing where you're like living in two worlds at once on the cover. And it just, I couldn't get out of my head after I saw it. I just kept thinking about it. Um, and uh, it's a really great book. Um, and, and that, of course, drive is the theme too. Maybe do you want to explain the theme of driving and, and why that became the title? Why that title poem became the title? It's something that comes up throughout the book. Um, and, and it's a great title as well, but, but why did you call it drive? Uh, let's see. Well, so the word drive is a noun and a verb. And I, I sort of think of that word as, um, what it is to be driven and to have ambition and desire. I think of all of those things when I think about drive, um, this title poem came about, um, I, I was my, my brother was gravely ill in New Hampshire and I was driving, making this five hour drive from New York to New Hampshire um, frequently every other weekend, practically. And um, um, a friend of mine out in the east end of Long Island, where I live part of the part of the time, um, is a poet mechanic and um, a lovely poet, Billy Hands. And um, I was feeling gas. I'm about to get on the ferry to go up to New Hampshire. And I challenged him to write a poem. And I would write a poem, too, about literally about driving, about a car. And he did. And I did. And um, but so I had it in my head when I was driving up there to um, and back um, about what it was to about cars. Um, but it turns out that I spent a lot of my time <laughs> in some mode of transportation, um, cars and buses and trains um, and so I think we all write about the landscape that our our personal landscapes, and that happens to be one of mine. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, let's hear another poem. I think the next one up was Anthem that you wanted to to read. Right. Well, I wanted to read one of the poems um, that that you published in Rattle a number of years ago, and this poem is one that you selected. And my my brother died after an illness, and this poem is about him. Anthem. His face, a flag, fades and folds into what it once was in death, an anthem to itself. He is wave after wave of what promised to be a good ride, always in four-wheel drive. He is passenger and pilot both. The roll bar protects us from breaking our necks. What I know about him, I know I know without doors, without windows, without a roof. Yeah, and that was Anthem. And that, that appeared in Rattle number 53, um, a wonderful poem from, from uh, Elaine Sexton's book, Drive. Um, and so, Elaine, so how did you um, become a poet? Like, what was it that, that got you into poetry? I know you're very interested in visual art, too, and, and text and how things look. Um, the appearance of 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 writing on the page. Um, what is it about poetry that that drew you in the first place? Well, you know, I I, I think of myself as a writer and a maker, and I feel like I always, um, I really from an early age, I 
thought of writing as a way of kind of sorting things out and making order from disorder. And um, I was thinking about this question, which is, you know, often in an interviewer asked a question like that. And I was just remembering oddly that when I was about 10 years old, I had a friend who moved away from, I lived in New Hampshire, she moved to Maryland and we became pen pals for a number of years. And I used to make these little tiny newspapers <laughs> rather than write a letter. I would like cut up my text and put them in little paragraphs and make like a little newspaper. And I just, I, I just remember that this week thinking about my interest in making text and putting it on a page. And so, um, I don't know, it was just a, it was an organizing principle from early on, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so, so how does that relate? Like, like I've never talked to anybody on the show who who is um you know teaches text and image too in that way um so so what is it that you do in that domain um the art and text is art and um and how does that relate to poems well you know i just i just think i have a physical relationship to printed matter you know um much of my my day job for many years until the magazine industry tanked about 10 years ago was a magazine publisher. So I worked in print. Um, but I, uh, I, how does it work? Well, I, I actually have, I can show you something. So I, you know, when I, when I write draft poems, I, as I did when I was 10, Mm -hmm. uh, I cut them up, cut the poems up and, tape them into little booklets like this. Can you see this? Yeah. Um, and I, I carried around with me. I can, I can edit and revise and work on it over a period of time. And, um, and I, I, I sort of feel like something, there's something physical that happens when you're looking at text. It's very hard. I mean, you know, I'm old enough to go back to typewriters, right. But, you know, it's, it's very easy to change things and fix things on the screen. And then you you know, you always have, you can always save your drafts, but there's something very, very different when it takes time to change something versus just, you know, erasing it, you know, just uh, deleting it, let's say. Um, so, um, so my writing life is very, you know, uh, woven into my making life. Yeah, that's and, very, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's very interesting because, uh, you know, Rattle came about as a chapbook like that, as a, um, um, for for what Alan, we you know, we said it's found in 1995. That was a a, cl- a chapbook that Alan made for his class uh, for Jack Rape's method writing workshops in oh, LA way back then. And so the first the first issues were just class chapbooks of students. The first two or three, and then it kind of expanded and it became more fun. Then it was like just LA poets, and then it kind of broadened out from there and became like Perfect Bound and and all that stuff. But um, it's interesting, too. And then Alan, too, has this habit of uh, keeping poems in his pocket, which is really, right. I think, the main <laughs> thing that he um, gets out of being the editor and, and sort of funding and founding Rattle is that we read poems uh, as submissions. And when he really loves them, he takes a copy from me and folds it up and puts it in his, his shirt pocket and then reads it to people for the next week. <laughs> and uh, I love that. I, I love So that. it's the same kind of thing. Just carry around slips yeah. of paper that where words, these little squiggles on the page really mean something <laughs> to uh, right. a lot of people. But um, but I noticed too, I mean, just your style of poems, at least in this book, um, are, are very, you know, the, the white space on the page is very meaningful. There's a sort of a 
a delicacy is the images. It's very image-based poetry, too. As they move down the page, there's a lot of white space sort of giving it room to, like, think and giving your imagination room to play. Um, do you think that's a, is that a, a consequence of, of your interest in the visual arts as well? Or is it more of, like, the, a consequence of the way you write and having scraps of paper? Is, it, is that part of it? <laughs> <laughs> I think probably both. Um, I do think I do think that yes, white space. I do feel like I'm. I think of the text on the page. I mean, obviously, after the poem is drafted, after the, what the poem is about is there. I think manipulating the text so that the reader enters a poem in a certain way is part of how I want people to experience the poem, because I think we all experience poems before we even read a single word, we look at it, right? Mm -hmm. And we see if short lines, long lines, is it couplets and orderly, or is it a mess? And we already make, we already form an opinion about what it is that we're going to experience. And some can, people just flip past it, looks like either too tight or too orderly or too messy. So anyway, I think, I think I do think very much, very much about how poems appear on the page. Um, and but thank you for, for that's such a nice compliment about the, the delicacy on the page. And I just want to put a call out. So the book designer actually made the book a little bit narrow hmm. um, to accommodate the fact that the poems are long and narrow. And I have to say, it does fit very nicely in a glove compartment of your oh. car. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. That is one of the great things about poetry. And and that's a care, too, of the press, because I can tell you, you know, firsthand, yeah. knowing how much paper stock costs and stuff, it costs a little extra money to make it an odd shape. Because, it does. Um, you know, rattle yeah. is six by nine, because that is the basic, you know, paper stock, and it saves, you know, so to, to yes. care enough. Um, most most yeah. presses, yes, I was, I was, astonished when they were Mike Russ, Michael Russell, Russell, Russell design out of Cambridge designed it, but that they would, you know, put, spend what it costs to make the book, the physical object, a thing of beauty, which I really appreciate. Yeah. Well, it definitely is. Um, let's hear another poem from it. Um, I think non-place is next. Okay. So this poem, um, again, not all poems in the book take place in a car, but I've selected some that do. Um, non-place uh, is a poem. I, I, the title comes from a term that uh, a f- anthropologist, French anthropologist, Marc Auger, um, identified. He calls it non-place, which are places of so little significance they have no name. Um, which go- harkens back to when you're in a car and like, where are you? Like some highway somewhere. Um, so this is it. This is this poem. Non-place. That spring before I met you, I found myself in a tiny white rental car with a moonroof and stick shift in a country where I didn't speak the language on a roadway whose names and numbers didn't match my Baedeker, nor the quaint idea to bring a map that belonged to my father who died young. And I could swear he joined me skirting foothills we explored decades earlier on a family trip in an American Oldsmobile abroad, though I have no way to prove we drove this same route. Maybe the past is not the best way to navigate. So strong the impulse to make place personal. But this was it, my non-place, the off hours, days alone, my body blessed with little significance, without lover, without friends, no family, nor possibility of conversation, so little familiar, Even the gas pump presented a craving for intelligence, 
a marker coming and going, craving and caving, heaven on earth, coming and for God's sake, going. Yeah, and that was Non-Place, another poem from Drive by Elaine Sexton. And that poem uh, makes me think about the the purpose of poetry, which... um, One of the things that we publish, kind of relatively, they stand out, though, when we do, um, is when there's a a sort of a elegy or eulogy for somebody who's who's sort of unknown otherwise. And we have a poem I was thinking about coming up in, um, I think that's the spring issue, about a waiter. So somebody, um, you know, went to the same restaurant and always had the same waiter. And... um, you know, that they don't know the waiter's name. I think they didn't know their first name, but that's it. And like, that's the kind of person that no one's going to write a poem about probably, but then this mm. poem does. And there are a bunch of poems that do that. Like uh, Mather Schneider's poem from last issue two about his uncle Nito. Um, you know, th- those kind of things, they really stand out in the way that poetry is sort of a kind of, of naming, you know, it's a kind of like giving words to an object or a person or a place or something like that. And then, and then you have that to carry around with you and last, you know, even after the person, um, you know, or the place is gone. And, um, and, and so there's some kind of function that we do as poets um, that, that has to do with just naming. And the very right. basic thing, which is, you know, from Genesis in the Bible, where you're going to name <laughs> everything on earth. And that's kind of what, what the poet's mission is. Um, so, so what do you think about that? And, and what do you think your mission is as a poet? As a poet? What are you trying to do when you sit down to write a poem? <laughs> well, I, I agree with everything that you said, just said. And, and I think, you know, poetry is, is kind of documentary in that way, naming things, right? Um, and uh, what was the question? Again? <laughs> well, what is my yeah, just, mission? Just what, do you, what is your mission? Like, what do you set out to do? And I know I ask people this question all the time. Yeah. It's a really tough one to, to put into words. But, but there's yeah. something that drives us, no pun intended, to write. Yeah. And exactly. so, so what is it that drives you to write? Like, why do you do this? Even though, I mean, your, your book has done really well for a book of poems, we should say. Uh, but you. still, it's not that many readers as far as books right. go. Um, and, and it's, you know, not the kind of thing where very few people are going to be, you know, making money or remembered right. by it. It's like this little clique of people that love poems. Um, so, so what is it that, that drives you to, to make poems and that keeps the process of making books as objects going? Well, I think, you know, there's, there's, it's kind of a relief or a release to be able to make order of your experiences and um, uh, and to leave something behind maybe, but to make something of your experience. You know, I, I my, my mother was a daughter, a child of the depression, and she sort of, nothing went to waste, not even, and, and, and I, as I see it, poems, not even an experience, right? You're going to make something of this experience. You have it. You own it, having experienced it, but to make something of it is kind of making, you know, making more of it and sharing it um, and communicating, right? Um, but just the process of making is very um, comforting and puzzling things out. It's just a way. I feel very blessed to have a practice of writing and making as a means of um, of understanding or attempting to identify things that are unknowable really um 
and dwell in that place, really. Yeah, and, and that ties into the themes of the book, too. I was, uh, I've never seen this quote before, but I love it from uh, The Motorist. I'm not sure if you're going to read that, but uh, it starts out with a, an epigraph from uh, Susan Suntag who says, Life is a movie, death is a photograph. And that's kind of the, the, the central theme behind Drive, is that, that that sense of keeping moving and keep doing something so that you're still alive. Um, you know, that, that push forward, that, that, you know, will to power, as Nietzsche put it, that that drives so many, you know, that, that drives our lives. Not just so many people. Every single person is driven by something to keep going or else we wouldn't get out of bed in the morning, you know? And, and so... Um, and how much of, of, of poetry is that? Is just the, the process of like putting one foot in front of the other and, and making something every day. That's it. That's it. And, and to your point, you know, I do think of the body as a kind of a vehicle, right? So, and, um, and so we are, you know, um, I do have a poem that I can read to that point. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, Drive also, uh, this book also addresses aging, um, and desire in that regard. But I have a poem um, I think I gave you to um, Self-Portrait Between the Car and the Sea. Mm-hmm. Do you have that? Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Um, this was a poem that uh, one of my dear friends is a, the poet Heather Sellers, and we often um, re- uh, share each other's work. And one of our favorite things to do is go to, to see art. She lives in Florida, but we look at art together. And we had both gone to see this exhibit uh, the Edvard Munch sh- exhibit. Um, and there was this painting called Self-Portrait Between the Clock and the Bed. Mm. And it was his very last portrait. And obviously he's like looking at, you know, death. Uh, so she went back and she, in her new book, The Present State of the Garden, she has a titled poem, that poem. She used that exact title. My response was Self-Portrait Between the Car and the Sea. I think I'll stay blonde a while longer. Downshifting for the view today, the engine strains in first gear the way on foot my body climbing the last few steps does. You would hear it too if the heart had a literal voice. Silently pulling for itself, the will wants the body to give it what it wants. How long will these parts last? I put off mining the flags, lifting their faces. I watch, I watch sea lice split from shell to sand to beach, eased by transition lenses. And that is, uh, that was a self-portrait between the car and the sea. Um, and if anybody has any questions for Elaine, please do leave them in the chat windows. I'm monitoring both uh, Facebook and YouTube, so I'll pass along any questions that you leave there just say it helps too if you like do bold and then question so i definitely see it um but um so, so one thing we already mentioned this poem is done or this book of poems is done really well um as far i think it was on the you know high on the bestsellers list from small press distribution i saw that at some point um and um i've seen it all over the place there are a whole bunch of reviews i just keep it keeps coming up um, <laughs> what do you have because you know a press I, the press did a great job making a beautiful you know, book is an object, but a small press doesn't usually help with publicity and like seeing, you know, getting a, getting the book out there and making people actually read it. Um, so, so what has it been like? Like, how have you managed to have this book be so successful and why do you think it, it has been? Well, I got a friend, I got someone to help me mm-hmm. <laughs> get the book out, you know, um, and this is my fourth book and, you know, I've, I've made a lot of friends and connections 
in the world of poetry and outside the world of poetry over the years. And I feel, I feel like I've just been honestly blessed with people who just have taken an interest in the book that don't know me, that there's something about the book or the title or the image. I'm not, I'm not sure what makes it, makes it well, the poems, (laughs) Uh, but um, you know, we're all our own publicist, right? I mean, I feel like, I feel like I put as much energy into kind of getting the book, getting the word out as I do writing the poems, right? Um, And so anyone who's ever said, you know, people who've published my poems, individual poems, um, we've contacted them and sent them, you know, review copies. And I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, what would you say to people though who who you know it, it's kind of and I too I, I'm kind of guilty of this myself. I came out with a book. I love writing. It's really fun to write and create and and sort of have this own universe erupt from your subconscious or whatever happens. And then you, you and then you have you know you send up poems and that's kind of easy. Then you have a book and it's like this thing you have to actually do something with, and it, it kind of gets depressing. Like it feels so like business like and rote and not the same kind of thing as. Um, is the creation process. It's so different. It's, you know, it's, and, and, you know, like somebody like, um, our best chat book, I think was, um, Nicole Brown and, and she just, it, it sold out. Um, and it's because she just tirelessly like writes letters to people is constantly like on the move, setting up events, setting up yeah. workshops and she'll sell like 30 books at a workshop. And, and you really have to like work and work and work. Did it you is, ever uh, feel like does does it ever like get distracting or depressing because that you're doing that so much versus I'm the actual joyful writing? Yeah, I'm exhausted, and I you know lately I've been apologizing. I said I said I sent an email about this event tonight to to friends and colleagues, and I said I'm you know this is the last one, well, <laughs> at least for the year, right? But uh, people have been you know yes, you just have to be your own sales person honestly it's half sales in a in a good way i suppose um uh it's yeah you just it's it's using social media and any means by any means possible <laughs> yeah uh, for sure well let's hear another poem and i got some questions lined up too but let, let's hear the next one uh i'll read the poem this poem is actually dedicated to heather sellers it's the title is this In the way your poem with a lake in it is not about the lake, mine with a dog and the broken heart is not about a dog or saving face. Your ibis as pearls in their nests is no more about the way the sway of banyan trees than it is about lovers and brothers or fathers living among the cedars and scat in my poems, nor those pyres by the tracks waiting for a match, all queerly remembered queer as teaching ourselves not to drown or of clouds that don't move, but a seahawk carries in her talons and the long dirt road and the navel of the moon. All poems about storms at sea combined are not about, sorry, all poems about storms at sea combined are not about the earth's proclivities, but deciding what spins. Everything is about gravity, the grave pulling for us, each day it starts with a bark calling our name. Hmm. Yeah, that's a wonderful poem. That was uh, was this from Drive. And, and that's one of the poems that, that stood out, especially there's a lot of things, a lot of moves that you make. And one of the really cool moves in your poems are these sort of these, these really short, tight 
philosophical statements. Like everything is about <laughs> gravity, the grave pulling for us. And, um, and, and, you know, that stands out a lot. And, and where do those, I'm curious about your writing process, because it feels very imagistic based. And it feels like you're generating these images and sort of moving delicately through imagistic type poems. And then you get to a point like that. Um, where does a line like that come from in your writing process? Is that something you're writing toward? Is it something that pops up in the, in the process of doing it? And, and can you just describe in general how you go from the first image in a poem, because they're, you know, to, you know, progress through the poem, sitting down at your notebook or wherever you do it? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think I ever, I don't think I ever really know where a poem is going to go to, to, at the start. So I usually start with something, an idea or a thought or some expression that, that I'm curious about that I don't understand. And um, if it's a narrative poem, this isn't really a narrative poem, but it's a poem about writing really. Um, I kind of, this particular poem, I pulled images from a lot of different poem, different other poems that didn't kind of gel in one poem. And I just, they just, I don't know, folded together about, this poem is about um, that, you know, the one, th everything's a symbol for something else, you know, and so it's like the the, the trees is a stand for one thing and the banyan trees are, anyway. Um, but in the end, um, I was, I think I had drive in my mind about, you know, tick, 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 we're not getting any younger. Um, the grave is the only thing pulling for us and we have to move against gravity. So um, that also speaks to the image on the cover, right? Kind of gravity yeah. defying. Um, so um, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but I feel like, you know, I, I most I think many people would say the same thing that, you know, if you know what the poem's about, you know, why write it? You're, you're just feel, you know, that's prose maybe, right? You're writing an essay about something, but you want something to surprise, some surprise to happen. And so it's kind of a miracle, honestly, when, when something happens, like all, all the ideas and images suddenly come together. You think, oh, this is what it's, about this particular poem is about yeah and, and how often does that miracle happen like how many times do you sit down like what's the ratio of poems that just don't go anywhere versus the ones that the, the miracle appears well I, I guess i use the word miracle liberally um well let's put it this way every each of my books takes five or six or seven years i mean one or two of them is in placing it or finding a home for the book itself. But um, so if I have 60 pages of poems, I don't know. I, I don't know if we're talking about the math of it, you know, like one in 10 mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> would make it to the, make it to the book or get published. Mm -hmm. And then what do you do with the other, the other, the other nine? Do you like go back <laughs> and, and, or do you just flush them and move on? Well, no. So, so this poem, I'm glad we're talking about that mm -hmm. and this poem. So this poem, the, um, I think had a lot of um, the, the late great Maxine Cuman called it her bone pile. Uh -huh. um, that poem that poem came from like little fragments of other poems, my bone pile that didn't work in the, in a poem that I suddenly I smooshed together. Like, all right, I love this. I love this. Do they? They? You know, what are they? What are they? What are they doing? Why? They're all from me. They have me in common, right? So. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I keep them. There's always a, a line from a poem, 
you know, I teach, I teach and I love teaching. And I often, you know, say, well, pull, pull the best line of the last 10 poems you wrote and put all of those in one poem and see what you can make of it. But there's lots of ways of constructing a poem. Mm-hmm. Uh, for sure. Well, let's hear another one. I think uh, autobiographia literaria, that's hard for me to say, <laughs> is up next. Well, this, thank you. All right. Thank you. This poem is um, the title, Autobiographia Literaria, is a title of a Frank O'Hara poem that I love. And in the very, it's a little tiny poem. And in the center, he says, um, uh, and here I am, the center of all beauty, writing these poems. Um, and it's kind of an ecstatic little poem about just here I am. How lucky can I be to have be here with you, Tim, today? Uh, anyway. This also, I'm borrowing. I don't know. Everyone, I'm sure, knows these poems. Or if you're if you're a poetry poet and po- deeply in poetry, um, I was I was responding to Ocean Vuong and Roger Reeves. Um, Someday I'll love Ocean Vuong, who which was a copy of Roger Reeves. Someday I'll um, love. Roger Reeves mm-hmm. and Roger Reeves copied Frank O'Hara. Someday I'll love Frank O'Hara. So I decided not to do Someday I'll Love Elaine Sexton, but this poem um, weaves is is speaking to the self in a way that I think I use the love word in the middle of it, but this is too much information. No, it's one. great. Yeah, we love hearing <laughs> this kind of thing. Okay. Uh, autobiographia, literaria after Frank O'Hara. Someday the blank page will rush under me with the grace of a walk in the woods with you who have been silent for years. You will blow sun in the spring-leafed trees and the damp earth will begin to dry and crack and the birds who no longer migrate will start to sing despite global warming for they too love the author who stumbles through time Still there's a chance that history repeating itself will change course. You're not dead yet, a friend who has passed, like to say. And I've been known to perseverate and repeat and repeat, and will probably do so from the grave. My stone etched with the text, not yet, not yet. And that was uh, Autobiographia Literaria. Oh, I thought I could do it. Literaria. Elaine <laughs> <laughs> Sexton. Um, yeah, another wonderful poem. Uh, there's a question here from uh, Dick Westheimer. He was back. Uh, he says, love the titles. Perhaps you could talk about titling. And that's always an interesting question. You know, given the fact that how I, the title in the, in the cover just works so great. And it's just, um, and, and so, so that's a great example of good titling, but, but, you know, titles can add something to a poem or they can kind of do nothing. And I think those are the two, or even, even like make you not want to read the poem. <laughs> right. And so, yeah. so what do you, what are you thinking about when you go, and, and does the title come last? Like, how do you come up with the titles and, and what are you going for when you title a poem? I love titles. I absolutely love, the, they're my favorite part practically of the poems, um, Almost always after the poem is written, although occasionally they occasionally I might start with them. But I agree with you entirely. So either like call it poem, like Frank O'Hara did. Many most of his poems were titled poem. Emily Dickinson didn't title a single poem, right? Mm-hmm. So either like get away, get out of the way of the poem, or pick a title that gives some. I mean, I think I feel like I always say I think poems need to. Um, you can make the title do some work. You don't have to re- don't re- have to repeat anything in the poem. The poem, the title can give you 
can inform the way you read a poem, right? Oh, it should inform the way you read it. But you're right. It can also, um, a bad title is, you know, like I'm flipping to the next page. <laughs> doesn't look very promising, right? I mean, I feel like poems are like little tiny sales pitches. You've got the title, you've got the first, second, third line. You have to hook your reader by then, you know, mm-hmm. unless you're committed, unless you love the author and you're like, you know that the poem is going to deliver. But, you know, I, I feel like um, titles are should be doing some of the heavy, heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the great examples of just the titles um, that you shared of, of you have, you're really good with one word titles too, or really short titles. I mean, a lot of times people like, run with <laughs> like fun, long titles um, and to do work. Um, but the titles you have, and we have Drive, which is such a double, <laughs> triple, quadruple metaphor, and then Anthem, Non-Place. This is such a simple thing. It's so intriguing based on other stuff. And then you have longer titles as well. Um, so so very interesting. Um, mm. We had a... Oh, it was Kim Stafford who had the great uh, great advice. He did. He said you should do a one word title. He'd make three titles and kind of like like test it out. And you should have a one word title, and then a um, a title that describes the poem, and then a weird title, and pick your favorite of the three. Um, and and you come up with good one word titles. It's true. Um, an- another question here from um, Kashiana Singh. Um, she says, uh, "What is your view of after poems and response from journals to these poems?" And I hope I think she might be talking about something in particular. I'm not sure. Have you heard journals either hate or love after poems? So I can I can talk about that a little bit. But go ahead. What do you think about that? The, the, yeah. Well, I, I, maybe she means after after Frank O'Hara, yeah. after mm-hmm. Edvard Monk, after. Um, you know, I think you can. I think people can lean too heavily on them. So I would do that sparingly. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I feel like I get if I see like too many. I feel like the the author is just leaning too heavily on other material. So um, although I love at poems that begin with after mm-hmm. <laughs> the first line, that's a whole other thing. But Tim, what are, what are, you, what are your thoughts on after Well, I poems? just, I was going to offer the suggestion that if you pick a poem from a journal and make it after that poem, it really adds, you get some bonus points for that. So we have a bunch of poems like, um, uh, maybe we'll show them later in the, in the open lines. But there's one by uh, Chris Green, who I remember his name because that's my brother's name, but it's not my brother. Um, and uh, <laughs> there's a poem after a poem about his dog poem. And it, like you almost, like if it's a good poem, you can't not publish it if it's after a poem in your in your magazine. So that's come up a ton of times, right. um, you know, where someone's responding to a poem. There, there's another poem that's like, you know, in response to the poem on rattle page 42, December 25, whatever. And, and you, you're like, it's good. I got to publish it. So that's a trick to maybe get in uh, some magazines, I'd say. But, um, but other than that, I do think that the worry for me is just, um, you know, people not recognizing the reference. And if it's necessary to the poem, if it adds an, a crucial component, I do worry that people, you know, like our ideal reader is somebody who picks up the rattle in a doctor's office. And we want them who's never read a poem before since fifth grade to be able to enjoy it. And so we do think about, you know, do I need to have this, uh, you know, this knowledge of poetry history and the whole canon of stuff to appreciate this poem or not? And so it sort of has to stand in its own, too, is another consideration for us. Well, you know, one thing I just thought of as you were talking, Tim, is um, on in the in the camp of the after poem is it's more transparent. You know, we've all are influenced. All of our poems are after the poems, every poem that came before us. Right. And so some are more, so these, this, and I thank you for this question, whoever asked this. Um, I think um, 
it might, you know, if they're more transparent and more direct, like people are borrowing ways, you know, the ways lines are made, they're kind of copying poems by others, but it's, but, but acknowledging the source is the key, especially when you're doing something so close to the original. Yeah. Um, which is why I called, I didn't want to do someday I'll love Elaine Sexton. And I just went in another, I just thought, <laughs> oh, we're sick of that concede every every graduate yeah. student in america is writing those poems yeah i mean it is a great point though that everything is really after something you know it's and i think that's one of the maybe problems to talk about the selling poetry aspect that we were talking about before but but poetry is this like big dialogue where you read a poem and you want to respond in some way and it sort of infiltrates you and then you have like a reaction in a different direction and there's almost it's very rare that somebody reads without wanting to write too and so it becomes this thing where there can't be enough you know, demand for the supply. It's just a basic economic problem because everybody who loves poetry starts writing them too because why not? It's great to be part of the dialogue. Um, yeah, so so that all plays together too. Um, let's see, I'm keeping an eye on time. Let's do, I think we have uh, two poems left, right? Let's, uh, let's make sure we get to them both. Let's do the next poem. Uh, Copper Beach is the one I have next. All right. This poem is uh, when I met the person that I married, uh, Nora, um, she wanted to introduce me to her favorite tree and uh, a place that she walks often. And it's this beautiful copper beach tree. So this is kind of, this is a love poem really. And also it's like the body, again, this is the subject of the body that appears elsewhere. Because it had been quite literally four decades since I last climbed a tree, I stood a long while watching you overhead. Your elbows disappeared in the sheets of plum dark leaves, so cool in the heat. I pressed my face against the bark. I patted your dog's snout, lost, my body touching the idea of leaving earth. I wrapped my arms around a trunk wider than my own, growth and decay in my mouth. I kissed the twins, fear and ecstasy. My feet where my shoulders once were. My fingers reached for the sole of your shoe. A blanket of green held me in its arms. The backsides of leaves last seen from the ground. Yeah, that was Copper Beach. Another great poem from Elaine Sexton's Drive. And um, another thing, and that's a perfect kind of segue to one other thing I wanted to talk about, which was that the poems in this book are a lot more sort of positive oriented or optimistic than, um, you know, you talk about, you know, death approaching and the gravity of the grave, but in a way that becomes a celebration of life in the way that like, you know, the fact that this is finite makes us sort of have to appreciate it if we think about it enough. You know, you only get this one life to live and like we can't waste it. So let's enjoy what's around us is kind of one of the themes as we drive through it. Um, and, and, and so having a love poem there, I mean, I wish we had a love poems issue in Rattle years ago. Mm. And it was sort of hard to fill. You know, it, it's um, <laughs> like so many poems these days are about problems and negativity and political issues and turmoil and like this terrible thing that happened to me. And to have poems that, that praise life is a lot, a lot more rare and to have humor in poems is rare, too. Um, and so how do you how do you approach that? Um, you know, spinning? Is that something you're conscious of? I guess I should ask is, is trying to, to have a positive take on things, because there are a lot of praise going on in this book. Yeah, I guess I have a, I have a 
inner Pollyanna in me. Although my very first book, I had a poem called Pollyanna Redux. I had read Pollyanna, the book. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, Pollyanna had, was forced to, you know, live in an attic with an awful aunt. And her Christmas present was a pair of crutches because that's what her father found at goodwill. And I, in my poem, I sang, let Pollyanna be angry and sad and depressed. You know, why does she have to why does everything have to end up? Why does she have to make everything happy? So I have pushed against the Pollyanna, but I don't know. I, 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 uh, I don't know. I, I guess I, I guess I am a Pollyanna. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with it. I think glass is half full. I mean, you know, well, what, what choice? Do we yeah. Have? I mean, if we have a, a choice of two books, you know, one that's going to make us appreciate moments and in, in life and love and all that stuff. And another book is going to make us depressed. I mean, we expect people to want the depressed one that doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. So, so it's, well, it's good to have, feel, you know, it's we want to feel something. We want to feel something authentic. I don't think it, all they all, I don't think all the poems end on a happy note, but I feel like, we want to feel connected to yeah. other people in our grief yeah. and our happiness. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there are several elegies in this book as well. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, another thing I want to ask about too is if you ever write in form, because the the poems. I'm I'm wondering why you're you're you know the poems are very musical in, in the way they move um, through line breaks and stuff. There's sort of a rhythm that comes through with the short lines, and I wonder how much you think about the 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 sound of the poem as you're going through. And and if you ever write informal poetry too, because I think a lot of times people who um, have that kind of ear for it do write formally as well. So so how do you yeah. approach that? Yeah, you know there aren't honestly. I don't think there's any in this book. But mm -hmm. yes, I've written sonnets and a beautiful my one of my favorite poems is a pentoum I wrote in my early in my uh, in my first book. Um, but um, sound is very important to me. So I feel like the sound and sense of words combined is really important um but i don't i haven't re been writing in form mm -hmm. in received form anyway yeah. um but so, so how I do you did, yeah i did kind of make up a form mm -hmm. <laughs> um, well, well how do you approach the sound then like 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 given you can go in infinite directions almost with the first you know the first few words how do you how do you keep it musical while being free at the same time is there? Do you read the poems out loud as you're writing, or? or... Yes, I do, and I, you know, I like repetition. I like using the same word more several times, but each time in a different way. And mm -hmm. so, repetition is a kind of a musical device. Um, and um, the last poem I'm going to read tonight is a kind of form that I feel like I kind of invented, which uses rep repetition and images circling around one another and re repeating and repeating and returning and returning. Um, but I feel like if you've studied and written in form, you know, anything you write that doesn't look like form or one you recognize is, you know, again, re you know, received <laughs> material that you're repurposing. Yeah, yeah um, for sure. Um and then, and then, what are you um, before we read the last poem? Uh, what are you working on now? Like, what's your next you know, project? Do you have anything going in different directions, or do you are you writing just generating poems to see what happens? I mean, both poets have uh, poets I talk to have both ways of going. Like, some people jump into a new project where they have like some theme after they're done with the book, or they they're just writing and then seeing what happens. And I have no idea what I'm obsessed with next. So, so how is it for uh, Elaine Sexton? Um, I have a lot of poems. I have you know. 
I think I have a you know the foundation of a new book, but I don't. It hasn't gelled yet. It's like the poem like needs a title. I don't have. I haven't figured out what the organizing principle, for lack of a better expression, is. Um, I had a chapbook that I uh, was working on called Ink Head. I-N-K-H-E-A-D. I was on a train a number of years ago and uh, someone had carved with a pen knife the word ink head. And I so I started taking pictures and I thought, what is what is ink head? And I, it was it reminded me of um Zigbio Herbert's Mr. Cogito, like ink head, you know, like <laughs> anyway, I had a whole sequence of poems. I have a small collection of poems that might fit into that category with character um the character being inkhead <laughs> does that relate to the, the the textual design elements of your your other yeah career? well i just thought what is that and then i couldn't find it couldn't find it. i googled and it, there is a kind of graf, gra, uh, graffiti artist um it's his tag um his that word but i couldn't find it anywhere which excited me like who is this guy and what was or woman who who was this person who and where were the where were the where was the conductor and I don't know there was something about making a mark like that that felt very much like a writer and a anyway that anyway that that excites me and I'm still looking at poems that might fit in under that headline mm -hmm. so it sounds like a very organic process of just you know generating creative you know creatively and then and then seeing what what comes up and how it all fits together and the, yeah. and the ordering too is is that process too. You kind of look at what what you have and sort of you know move things around. Probably visually, right? Like printing things out, yeah. and sliding I them around. I, I wish I had it to. Oh, okay, I'm going to show you. I'll show you the system. Uh -huh. <laughs> show and tell. I lay I lay out my poems like this. Ah. Uh -huh. I reduce them down to like seven point type mm -hmm. so I can see my whole manuscript or work in progress uh, like this. Oh, you wow. can carry it around with you mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> and you move them around. Anyway, I'm in a kind of stage like that with this. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. For people just listening, that's like a storyboard, like a black a storyboard. thing. Yeah, with, yeah. yeah with, with the poems laid out like you would, almost like in a graphic novel or in a junk. So, so that kind and of it, style to, to see it for, visually. Yeah. Yeah. So, for people who don't have room, like don't have a giant living room table that they can leave their, you know, eight and a half by 11, 60 or 70 or 80 sheets, this is like each page, each poem is tiny. So, you can put it away and take it out mm -hmm. more easily. It, and, and since, I mean, that's probably a, a dumb question, but but I'm wondering about, you know, since you are interested in text and the visual, we, we talked randomly about fonts on the, last, uh, on the last critique of the week. Is there certain sort of font types that you're drawn to? Do you, do you try to come up with like unique ones when you're like, did you, did you pick the font for this book or do you just not no. care? No, the, no, I did care, but the graphic designer picked that. Mm -hmm. I use um, Verdana and Verdana. Whatever mm -hmm. the, the, the most basic sans serif face, you know, mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, so I don't really like fancy fonts. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and then uh, but although you know, I I probably I sent my first three books out before one of my friends said, you know, you're supposed to send the Times New Roman twelve point five. <laughs> That's like the only thing you should ever send to a publisher. And I thought, 
Nobody told me that. <laughs> well, obviously, it worked out fine. Did you know that? that? <laughs> I, I think, I mean, and I think it applies to, um, you know, fiction much more because then you, right. can, you can tell how many pages it'll be in a book from a manuscript just by, you know, the page numbers. I think that's what it's about. Um, well, what do you think when you get poems from submissions like that are, you know, exotic fonts? <laughs> I, I think, I mean, my, my first reaction is someone's trying too hard, I guess, you know, like there's certain basic ones that, that you don't, that aren't like obtrusive. I think you want to, you want to feel like the poems are, um, you know, elegant and someone cares about how they look, but you don't want to think about the font as you're reading the poem. So it's, exactly. it's that's the continuum. You got to find the happy medium uh, between the two of, of, of feeling like, you know, because I think it's a very important thing that poems look, you know, when you approach them, you have to have faith in the author that it's worth your time, even if it's 30 seconds. I'm going to give my 30 seconds of my life to you. Exactly. And it looks like <laughs> you know what you're doing, at least makes right. it for a much better experience than if it's just all over and who knows what, you know, fun. So I think that's the thing is just look like you know what you're doing, but don't, don't be obtrusive is what I would yeah. always say. Yeah. Well said. Um, well said. And, and one last question. We are about out of time, but, but from Maya um, uh, Mahmud says, um, can you talk about the process of recording your audiobook? So she must know something I don't, but so uh, recording an audiobook. <laughs> Grid Books has an audiobook mm-hmm. um, and, uh, I don't want to, I don't know what I can say about the process of it. It's I read the whole thing myself, mm-hmm. <laughs> although I tried to talk my editor into getting like five or six other people's voices, you know, like actors or something. I, you know, once years ago, um, I heard my, my poems were performed mm-hmm. a few poems and like, Oh my God, when an actor reads something you've written, you, it's just like, amazing if the poem is good Mm -hmm. um so um but i you know it it was fun to i'm so happy that it's there it's a recording and i guess someone ideally in a car driving somewhere can listen (laughs) i don't know who's gonna like sit listen to me read my entire poem Mm -hmm. um an audiobook but um i think they're perfect for for a road trip yeah i mean i used to in the old days back in the you know Mm -hmm. you know and the dark ages, I used to have video, uh, not video, cassettes. I would listen to poets on cassette on car trips. And I love that. It's a great thing to do. So yes. So I have an audio book. Yeah. I mean, that makes me wonder. I mean, it does seem like a great format, you know, especially with the rise of, of long form podcasts, like the one we are on now. I don't know how long, how long is your book? If you read all the poems, if you have it, do you know the actual minute length to I, read them all? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess, I would guess like an hour or two. Right, maybe. I don't, I don't think it's that long. No, I mean the book, the p- book's eighty page, eighty-eight pages of poems, so um, less than an hour, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a nice, you know, little podcast thing to read a whole book, and, and I don't know, maybe people should do more with that. That sounds kind of like a fun thing. Um, but anyway, uh, let's let's finish up with the last poem you have for us today, Elaine. Okay, great, Tim. This has been so great. Thank you. So you're so easy to talk to. It's great. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and you're just so, you're so informed. It's just wonderful to talk to someone who really knows the work. Um, so I'm going to read a poem called, which is the epigraph to the book, and it's a form that I I thought I was going to have a whole collection of these. It they each of them start with the most beautiful thing of, about one thing is another thing, and that other thing is hopefully unexpected and interesting. Um, and so I had twenty or 
30 of them and only three survived of those 30 and three of them are in the book. So the book begins and ends with one and there's one right in the middle. So this is the first one. And thank you everybody for coming to this podcast or listening. Uh, The most, and it's untitled. The most beautiful thing about my car is the beach. And the most beautiful thing about the beach is watercolor. And the most beautiful thing about water is the word And the most beautiful thing about the word is pigment. And the most beautiful thing about pigment is the soil. And the most beautiful thing about the soil is the earth. And the most beautiful thing about the earth is the sea. And the most beautiful thing about the sea is the drive. Yeah, that's a great, great last line in that. I love that. The most beautiful thing about the sea is the drive. Perfect, uh, perfect setup to the book and um, and to the themes about it. It's really great. Um, one of those things where, you know, the, the line just seems to come out of nowhere and there it is. Um, but great work. Thanks so much for being a guest, Elaine. It's a pleasure talking to you. We learned a lot and uh, read some great poems. I uh, really appreciate it. And uh, talk to you soon. Great. Thank you so much. Yep. Bye. That was Elaine Sexton with uh, Drive, her most recent book. You can find more of Elaine Sexton's work at ElaineSexton.com, which is spelled like it sounds, E-L-A-I-N-E, Sexton, S-E-X-T-O-N.org. So ElaineSexton.org. Check all of her books out there. Make sure you pick up a copy of Drive, a really wonderful book, um, and, and hope you do. Uh, now we're going to take a quick break, and we are going to go to the open lines, like I mentioned. How the open line works is uh, I'm going to put the show or the the link to participate in the chat windows. So only if you would like to read a poem. If you have a poem you'd like to share, um, go to this Zoom link. If not, just stay right where you are. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to go. Uh, you'll be able to read along like you were with Elaine's poems. Uh, but if you have a poem to share come over on zoom turn off your stream here come to zoom and share a poem there i'm putting the links up right now i will pin them to the top you can write poems about current events you can share poems that have been published recently we love when you have a link and we can show off another literary magazine online that's always a lot of fun um or you can have uh prompt poems and the prompt for this week we'll tell you about after the break because i can't remember it off the top of my head um it was it was a longer one but uh well oh yeah it was obituaries but we'll talk more about that in just a minute so the links are deployed join us on zoom if you would like and then first i forgot to say email your poem so we can show it on screen email it to open mic that's open mic at rattle.com email it there so i can show it on screen then join the zoom and then everybody then i have the poems i have you and it's perfect so please do that i'm gonna take a quick break we'll be right back with more poetry so sit tight right where you are or join us on zoom And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Uh, the prompt for this week, which was given last week by um, last week's guest, which was... Um, um, who was last week's guest? Um, I can't remember. Whoever last week's guest was. Uh, you know, when you do 172 of these episodes, you know, stuff... I'm going to look it up because I can't, I can't believe I can't remember who last week's guest was. Um, last week's guest was, of course, uh, none other than... Oh, Joan Kwan Glass, of course. Yeah, Joan Kwan Glass. Sorry, Joan. So that was last week's guest with Joan Kwan Glass. And her uh, prompt is right here. Let me share the prompt. Um, uh, Victoria Chang radically changes the way in which we regard obituaries by writing an entire poetry collection using obits as a form. Write an obituary for one of the following. A previous version of the yourself, a friendship or romantic relationship, a body part, your adult child, childhood, 
or for someone who has not died, but that you've lost. And so she gives a poem by Eugenia Lee, who we had on Rattlecast like 60-something, I think, or maybe 160, I don't know. Um, she has a poem, after uh, One Year After My Dying Father and I Stopped Speaking to Each Other. Um, that's from Split This Rock. There's a link there um, in the notes if you want to see it. Um, or you can just Google that. Um, but I also read uh, Victoria Chang's obit poem and then the whole book it's actually an amazing book i never read it before and just kind of fell into it and what an amazing i mean talk about containers for grief um it's a really great book and let's let's just share since we're doing it a bit let's see let's see actual Vic, victoria chang obit um from that book and this was from poetry magazine so this is available on the poetry foundation website at poetryfoundation.org but let's read this one because it's that's a good book so uh here we go just to kind of show off since we're doing a we're doing a um a prompt based after her. I think we should share a poem by Victoria Chang, right? So this is Obit. My mother's teeth died twice, once in 1965, all pulled out from gum disease, once again on August 3rd, 2015. The fake teeth sit in a box in the garage. When she died, I touched them, smelled them, thought I heard a whimper. I shoved the teeth into my mouth, but having two sets of teeth only made me hungrier. When my mother died, I saw myself in the mirror, her words in a ring around my mouth like powder from a donut. Her last words were in English. She asked for a sprite. I wonder whether her last thought was in Chinese. I wonder what her last thought was. I used to think that a dead person's words die with them. Now I know that they scatter, looking for meaning to attach to like a scent. My mother used to collect orange blossoms in a small, shallow bowl. I passed the tree each spring. I always knew that grief was something I could smell but I didn't know that it's not actually a noun, but a verb, that it moves. And so that is uh, one of the poems from Victoria Chang's book, Obits, or Obit, or just Obits, I don't know. But, um, but it's a great book, and so I recommend checking it out. Now, my poem, of course, is not that good. I had very little time to write it, too. I had all afternoon, and then ironically, this snowstorm left more than I thought it did as I was like thinking about writing this, and so I had to go shovel the driveway uh, so <laughs> I could get in and out. But um, anyway, this is Obituary for a Winter Storm, not in, in Victoria Chang's style. But here's my poem for the day, an extended metaphor, a sonnet, if you want to call it that, because it is 14 lines, even though they're tiny. Obituary for a Winter Storm. Died December 9, 2022. That's today. After a brief struggle to exist. Just the faintest flurry. It's flakes like bits of sand in a tiny hourglass. The plastic kind that comes inside a game. You, your turn, it says, has passed. The sun's warm hand is tapping on the window sill. It never had a name, this little storm. It never will. So there is my obituary for a winter storm, a very short, skinny sonnet. Uh, let's see what everybody else has to share. Um, and let's go first to Carla Schwartz. Hey, Carla, Hi. how are you doing? Hi, fantastic. It's such a great night so far. I'm sure it's going to be just fine after me yeah, well, too. it always is and i'm sure it's gonna be fine with you and your poems too so what uh, what do you have for us tonight so i have a, a a prompt poem i also had two poems published today actually oh, wow. on on a website that i sent you a link to that i could read one of them's pretty sh they're both very short but i could read one of them if there's time yeah, afterwards let's, let's say i think i'm looking at the number of participants we got 12 lined up right now it's six or, i think i say let's do uh two short poems or one long poem like a two-page max or target that's what we'll do today okay so, uh, so whatever so, you think yeah so i'll i'll do the first poem which is one page okay. and then i'll just read one of the other two okay perfect okay. yeah that's good 
um, so this one is called On the Anniversary of Two Days Before My Father Died. In my inbox, four poems about death. What the dead do in the cemetery, a little boy with his dead dog trying to understand death, unburying the dog over and over, bringing it back to the kitchen table in a box. Then there was the list poem, the obit for all things dead from the poet's past, and one more from Twitter about a dead deer in a backyard, and even one other I'd read in my email, but that was 15 minutes ago, a time already dead in my past, so I don't remember it. I didn't remember what my father looked like two days before he was declared dead until last night, trying to add some old photos to an online album. I searched through the year, adding this friend and that pastoral sunset until I arrived at the date that was two days before my father's death had been declared. I hadn't remembered how by then he was already dead, His how his body, some kind of a triangle of a chest, purpled in bruised and cancerous blotches, still growing on his face, the covering over of life, the life oozing down his face from his closed eyes, his mouth open, gasping for air. I don't know how in this year of grief I could forget this image I'd captured on camera, a worst nightmare so ghoulish yet covered in skin. Twice I tried and failed to add photos to an album, twice scanning hundreds of photos, selecting photos from backward in time by month and day until each time arriving at the photo I'd captured of my dead living father that last time I saw him, at which point, unable to continue selecting, I stopped and pressed done but the dialogue prompted, do you really want to delete? And afraid of the consequences, I pressed cancel. Oh, that was a really great poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carla. Really powerful and, and built up to a really emotional yeah, ending. That was really great. That was on the anniversary of two days before my father died. Um, yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. And then you had, oh, you had another one. Yeah, I sent you a link. Um, I There's this... A, a journal called the inquisitive eater out of the new school mm -hmm. and i ha so they do food poems and i have two poems and one was called rhubarb and this one is called applesauce the second one is okay. the one i'll read mm -hmm. how crisp the apples that resist the knife how sweet the pale yellow flesh to bite how the apple, smaller than my fist, pretends at symmetry when I slice. One seed split by my cut peers out like a new tooth from the core. I steady the apple half, the apple half and dice. Think of how each piece, each wedge of flesh fits together like a puzzle. And when I pour water in to simmer, 
sprinkle cinnamon from a jar without taking time to measure, I think how imprecise this process is, the making of the sauce, no matter the number of apples, no matter how much water, wait while I wait for the cook down, how long, for how long? Who cares? For this moment, I cover, then simmer, then mill. Yeah, very interesting moment. Thanks so much for sharing that applesauce. And again, that is um, in The Inquisitive Eater, New School Food. Very interesting. Inquisitiveeater.com, a, a journal that's new to me. They publish fiction, nonfiction, poetry, columns, art, all sorts of stuff, apparently. Um, so do check that out, Inquisitive inquisitiveeater.com. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Carla. Two great poems. Uh, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. Yep. Good night. Let's go to uh, Nate Jacob next. How you doing? Hey, Nate. How you doing tonight? I'm doing all right. <clears throat> it's good to be here. Yeah. So uh, what do you have for us? Hey, I wrote a uh, poet's response ah. to a news article this week about uh, Google's annual uh, top search results. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I remember this one from the submissions. Um, you so- read it? Of course, I read them all. What are you talking about? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought if I had my name attached, it was an auto. <laughs> just auto. There's actually a, a little bot for that. It's just automatically. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, that's reassuring. Anyway, uh, the uh, top 10 terms uh, searched this uh, last year included uh, four celebrity deaths mm-hmm. and uh, a few or a couple references to uh, lottery mm-hmm. Uh, ways uh, i had it, it was pretty vague lottery interesting search. interesting um, so anyway let me read my poem it's, yeah. it's self-explanatory titled uh betty white bob saget the queen and anne hesh arrive at the pearly gates lately i sleep face down with my left arm dangling dead enough over the bed's edge Knuckles scraping with every bodily twitch against toppled stacks of propped open books. Topics range wildly, pending my insomniac tastes. Between history and poetry, baseball books sliding under the pile of classical American lit. There's even a dictionary from 1953. My father left his penciled signature on its title page. Inside dozens of searched words, circled, notes in margins. Based on a pile of post-it notes I also inherited, I'd say my father was writing a script for a World War II love story. He never finished. Gone too soon, his story with him, aside from notes and circled words, Aryan, Nazi, Fuhrer, fascist and war, hardly terms of endearment. 70 years on, I have no need to look these terms up. This morning, over coffee, Google released its list of most common search results for the current year, a struggle of a year when those same World War II terms still found too common usage and footing among us all. And yet, none of my father's searches ranked on the list. Maybe the meanings of those terms are still etched enough into our collective mind, for better or worse. Or likely, we are wandering simpletons, distracted, searching instead for dead celebrities, serial killers, and starring roles. So busy searching how to cheat elections, lotteries, and word games that we fail to seek solutions and healing for a mad, mad world, asleep at the wheel, dangling at the edge of a new arms race. 
Yeah, excellent poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Nate. That was uh, Betty White, Bob Saget, The Queen, and Anne Heche arrive at the pearly gates. Uh, yeah, really touching poem with a father aspect, and then uh, and always interesting to look at what people are searching and looking for. That's always fascinating. Uh, yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Tim. Yep. Great show. Yep, take care. Bye. Yeah, that was Nate Jacob. Let's go to a uh, first-time caller with uh, um, uh Mishra. Hi, good evening, everybody. Hi, Tim. Hey, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Calgary, Canada. Excellent. And have you been on before? I can't remember. Rarely, if uh, so. No, no. I've Excellent. never been, but I, I just want to check with you. I put it on my note. This is a poem. It's written in two parts mm-hmm. by me and by my son, who's also on the call. His name is Devi Dutta. Mm-hmm. And we well... work from different places during a journey. Oh, that's great. <laughs> So is that okay? He can take over the second part. Yeah, definitely. Just uh, yeah, go ahead and unmute. Um, yeah, there's David unmuted. Okay, we got you both. So yeah, go ahead. That'd be great. Okay, it's a long poem. <laughs> it's called "A Long Awaited Trip: A Son's Journey and Two Sets of Reminiscences." Part one: Departure. I dropped my son at the airport yesterday for his journey to the land native to join his mom, who was already there. Today, when I was talking to him, while he had completed a leg, a 15-hour flight, and waiting at the airport for the next, I started wondering about the multifarious feelings going through me. A travel, that's not unusual, more so for one from an immigrant family, then why such feelings? I step back and take a look and go through questions and answers through my mind. Perhaps I'm concerned about him having a smooth travel, not fair, as he's a grown-up boy, or the excitement that he's visiting family after 12 years. Last he saw them as a 12-year-old, but why that should be exciting to me? Maybe a satisfaction in me through a surrogate, my son. Or maybe I'm drawing the simple pleasure of taking care of a child like he's little, though he's a man as much as me, or maybe while he has grown, I have not. As he waits through a long layover at an airport, I wonder, what is he doing? Then part two, I'll leave it to David. (laughs) Thank you. Part two, arrival. Um, A familial language that had become so unfamiliar. On this flight, I now enjoy the last few hours of its repatriated sounds. Yet how funny it was that in my two weeks in Orissa, I couldn't convince a single shopkeeper to talk to me in Oriya, nor could they convince me to talk in Hindi, and certainly not English. This was a rare chance to live where I was born, so why settle for a mere visit? Somewhere, I still taste the limestone in the water, the very same my bow would spend hours boiling out in Birmitirpur, the very same that was my JJ's livelihood, and practically everyone else's in the town. Starting as a cook in someone else's home before my dad was born and retiring with his own gated company quarters, like the vines that once graced the walls of that home, what a long way he had come. And like those very same vines, if I didn't go back to learn his story, I would not have known they were ever there. Somewhere, I still smell the fairest dust in the air though that one day dyed my Oja's snow white hair red, that one day dared to grace my eyes pristine walls even after they were cleaned and to this day provides Jorah's ruti and ghee. And if you have a problem with my replacement for bread and butter, just know that the Odia Hindi Bengali crowd in Lord Norisa might have said it the same way. 
Seeing the places Oja used to travel to play chess makes me miss someone I never even got to know. Oh, how much fun we would have had practicing openings together. I would have walked alongside his cow, Tony, to pick him up from work and asked him a million questions about science and math and history that he always so dutifully would answer. One day I might feel regret for having missed out on such a warm and welcoming family. But today, as I tell the flight attendant, I'd like coffee and not chai, my heart full of contentment and my head packed with stories, I return purposefully to write some of my own. Oh, that is wonderful. Thanks so much for sharing that. That is a first, uh, a first uh, two, you know, shared poem. Uh, Father and son, excellent, Davey. And uh, yeah, thanks so much. It was really wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. That was uh, Davey and uh, Bishwajit um, um, Mishra. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us and sharing that. That was great. Hope you do it again. Thank you. I pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, next up, let's go to... Um, Another first-time caller, and Lucy Chow is here. Let's go to Lucy. Can you hear me? I can. Hello, Lucy. Your camera's not on, but that's fine if you don't want to. We did hear you great, though. Okay, so um, I'm going to share um, um poet's respond poem. Excellent. It's called um, Obituary for Our Love Affair with Corona. Great. And why don't you wait one just one minute. Let me put it in a... Um, a better fit in a Word document really quickly. Um, <clears throat> there we go. Make it a little bigger. There we go. Okay, and so this is uh, the prompt poem, of course. I think this is our first attempt at the prompt poem. Looking forward to it, Lucy. Uh, go ahead whenever you're ready. Died succumbing to her quietus on December 7, 2022. Her reign spanned three years, suppressing human exploits cleaning rivers and scurrying postmodern skies, pristine as Canaletto's postcard paintings. She taught humans, a self-claimed social species, the sovereignty of solitude. In Zoom and Google Meet, she grew imaginary gardens with real but intangible bird feeders in them. She brooded over roosting grounds of metal commercial birds so they hung their aluminum wings in apprehensive paralysis frozen, lightless. As if she preferred song sparrows and skylarks to possess heaven. She grasped pleasure cruisers in her inexorable talons, and for a while, whales and dolphins swam unmolested. She swapped throats and counted hours and days, 24, 48, 72. Your shelf life is no longer than that of a basket of hand-picked raspberries, she said. She had three-color vision, no longer than that of a basket. She had three-color vision, green, yellow, red. She loved green. Would she with mother tree on that? She made green the norm. You must be green, she said, as in, you must be white. She had stigmophobia. She made untouchables. She put sky blue rectangles over faces to make the unseen beautiful. She incarcerated whole cities where it was not that sin brought sickness to people, but that sickness was punished as a sin. She made vegetables and toilet paper desolate luxuries. As a love affair, she gave birth to more of her kind, love affair with nature, love affair with the internet. 
How could one mother bear such unlike offspring? Because she was in bed with different men, of course. In the final month of her life, she made multiple attempts at suicide. All her suicide notes were blank paper aggrieved people held up to bureaucrats going to work with the raw sun of winter dawn licking their glacial masks. Blank paper was held up. Then she was ambulanced to a hospital where her subjects scoffed at her waning puissance. Doctors put her on a tired respirator. Hours later, she breathed her last unquietly. Doctors panicked. Was it an omen? She died oblivious. Touch the fragrant cheek of this lemon ripening on this little tree in the community garden. In memoriam, Amor Corona. Oh, that is wonderful. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was Lucy Chow with Obituary for Our Love Affair with Corona. Really great poem, great use of that form, moving around through different uh, different images and uh, and taking different leaps as you personify it. Excellent work. Thanks so much for sharing that, Lucy. Really good. Um, let's see. Brent Stauffer's up next. <clears throat> Hi, Jim. Hey, Brent. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. It's been a really good really good night of poetry yeah fascinating stuff um and i i also enjoyed the uh the uh the conversation about the ai yeah that that has me uh, yeah (laughs) i i i tried to get on it today to get it to write some poems for me (laughs) and um it was the server the server was down yeah i tried to yeah I wanted to see how much yeah. it's improved since the summer, and I couldn't get any either. But I, I saw one on Twitter that somebody had said the prompt was something like, uh, write a poem about how futile it is for AI to try to write poetry. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And um, the po- the poem was pretty good. <laughs> I mean, it, was, <laughs> I mean it, it, it rhymed the word with the same word mm-hmm. at the end. You know, just use the same word twice, uh-huh. but it did it with a very clever enjambment, uh-huh. and it almost kind of works. And um, and I'm <clears throat> uh, so what I'm thinking is the AI is definitely going to be able to write poetry, mm-hmm. but maybe it won't be able to write good poetry. Yeah, and so we'll all just have to up our game. <laughs> maybe, maybe that'd be nice. I, I see I, a future, I unfortunately. <laughs> I see a future where it writes better than us and we're all depressed because we there's nothing we can do better than a robot. And I don't know what I don't know how to I don't know how to get around that problem, but we'll, we'll see. Yeah, well hopefully that will yeah, it could be. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but um, to be a downer. So but, anyway, yeah. I did <laughs> Well <laughs> maybe in a couple of years I'll write another obit poem about how human poetry is is no more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's no need for it because yeah. you know but uh the obit uh the obit poem that i did write <clears throat> is uh kind of along those lines where um i guess the only thing you really need to know about it is that um uh i started going to a fine arts school in mm-hmm. seventh grade and so i kind of grew up with this uh faith in uh 
the purity of the mission of art and, and, and all that sort of thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, then, and then, and then, and I, I, um, was also agnostic, so I didn't believe in God, but I believed in art mm-hmm. with so, somewhat the same fervor as a person might believe in the meaning of their life being bestowed upon them by God or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel the same way. So then I had this devastating conversation. That's what the, and that's what the poem's about. <laughs> hey, Brent, why don't you uh, turn your video so, off just to oh, make sure? I kind of get the sense it's going to get choppy any second. It hasn't quite yet, but there you go. Okay. So let's just hear the poem. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Um, faith. My unshakable faith in art died the night of July 4th, 1996. It was, in fact, murdered by a very pretty magazine writer as we sat on the tailgate of an old red truck in Birmingham, Alabama, waiting for the fireworks. We sat cross-legged and passed Southern Comfort between us. The bottle was a gift, is why we forced that sticky sweetness down. Honeysuckle climbed fences in the shadows. No art is great, she said. I brought up Mahler, Whitman, and Vermeer. Indisputable. She countered with Manilo, McEwen, and Kincaid, heroes of the people. What is art for, she asked. Having been well-schooled in this, I fervently cried, to communicate. She pointed to the millions and millions of indiscriminate souls that hovered unseen just beyond the glow of our argument. Weren't they worth communicating to? Yeah, but I said a rhetorical riposte of the desperate. What about truth? She laughed like a little babbling brook. What about beauty? Her giggling surged into a full-throated Mississippi. There's no art except in the eye of the beholder, she said. Her hair smelled like honeysuckle, or was that the honeysuckle? Over my shoulder, the boom and bang of the fireworks began. Light flickered over the mouth of the bottle in my death grip. I couldn't bear to look up. What if they weren't beautiful? What if they were? Uh, great story time there. That was a bit for lost faith. Thanks, Brent. That was excellent as it always is. I uh, really enjoyed that. Great. Thanks, Tim. Wonderful night. Yep. Take care. Always a pleasure. Yeah, that was Brent Stoffer with us. A bit for lost faith. And now Nivedita's here. Let's go to Nivedita. Because I think she's probably uh, you know, in a weird time and in between getting up and going to work or something like that. Hey, Nivy, how are you doing today? Hey, Tim. I'm doing great, thank you. How about you? Yeah, I'm doing great. It's great to see you live again, but this must be a really bad time for you. How are you doing it this early? I'm doing good. It's not early. I just, like you said, I just finished breakfast and I'm getting ready to start work. Ah, it's 8.30 a.m. in the morning. Work starts at 9, so... <laughs> ah, very good. So I guess with the daylight shift in this crazy United States, it works a little better. Huh? A bit better, yes. <laughs> yeah, very good. Well, I'm so glad you could join us. Uh, what do you have that you want to share? Prompt poem, as always. Uh-huh. So this is basically an obituary to vision. Ah. Um, not just what we see, but what we think we see, what we hope to see, and what we don't see, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah, that's a great thing to write about. Uh, so... It's called Obit to Vision. Obit to Vision. Died way back in 2005 from years of scribbling words and phrases into a notebook and then squinting into that mess trying to make sense. 
my vision collapsed again in 2019. Not a sudden collapse, but a gradual one, lasting almost nine whole months, insidiously, bit by bit, till it was gone. Although it seemed recovery was on the horizon, hope was snatched away time and again. Now, looking into the mirror, I see myself, but do not see myself. I used to think that my vision was gone when I got glasses, but it was only after the collapse I realized. I realized that 2020 vision is not vision at all, for that was when I lost the ability, the ability to see the truth. Grief looked like a rainbow to me. People say you cannot see your own grief, only feel it, but I saw grief and the truth did not set me free. Oh, great use of metaphor you. there. Yeah, thanks so much, Navy. A pleasure to see that was a bit to vision. Always a pleasure having you on. Glad you could catch it. Thank you, Tim. It was lovely talking to you. Yep. Have a nice evening. Yep, have a nice day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Navy Karthik with uh, Obit to Vision. And let's go, uh, let's go next to Brian O'Sullivan moving down the line. <clears throat> Hi. Hey, Brian. How are you doing today? I'm good. Enjoying the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, always a pleasure. So what do you have to share? So I sent a uh, a prompt poem. It's mm-hmm. called Seven Deadly Couplets. Excellent. Ooh, it is seven couplets. The, the, it is not um, false advertising. <laughs> yeah, pseudo-sonic kind of. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so the death has occurred. Um, yeah, seven deadly couplets. The death has occurred of my Catholic belief. Survived by myself as mourner-in-chief. Missing the mystery of incense and censor, though I still have my Pope hat ped dispenser. Surviving her too are envy and pride, whom she nourished but also denied, and wrath, sloth, and lust survive belief, feeling no doubt a certain relief. In lieu of prayers, bring tables and chairs. Let's have a big lunch and some whiskey shots with gluttony, the sin whom you thought I forgot, and toast the best gifts the faith left behind and share our newfound freedom of mind. Excellent. That was great. I love the seven deadly couplets. And that was, uh, I love the Pez dispenser the most. Thanks so much for sharing that, Brian. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was great. Take care. Yeah, Brian O'Sullivan with uh, seven deadly couplets. And then let's uh, round up the, the Zoom with uh, a nice way to, a nice poetic way to turn the show around with Dick Westheimer again. And he's got something else for us. Hey, Tim. Hey, uh, Dick. Good. I haven't seen you in I, so long. How's it? How you been? So long. <laughs> I just, I just, Loved Elaine's interview. That was that was as comfortable and charming and great work as as any of them. That was terrific. Yeah, she was really fun to talk to. Good, a lot of interesting insights from her and good poems. Yeah, that was great. Um, so I did do a prompt poem. Uh-huh. Believe it, believe it or not, with with the other writing of poems this week, I'm, it's kind of a quirky one. So uh, uh, just a little context is mm-hmm. that. Um, in our family tree, there is a thread that goes back to the 17th century in this one woman's name, Hanel. Mm-hmm. And all I know about her is where she died, and I'm making up where she was born. Uh-huh. Interesting. Given the history of the time and what the what the migration patterns were of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she died young, so that's so I, I have a series of poems about her. Oh, interesting. Um, which is interesting, you know, sort of this fiction that is based on studying the history of the time. Yeah. Interesting. For me. I think interesting I for everybody. That, that's definitely interesting. an interesting thing to do with poetry. Yeah. So this is Hanel writes her own obituary. Hanel, 
born in Kiev, or was it sick, died many times, none of them small, all of them a closed door. She was a girl with a doll she saw on fire. She was dust, an exile, a mud child, hungry. She was a moat in the house of her betrothed, of old mayor, who she did not meet until the day he lay with her. She was a mother, a child suckling a child. She was a woman whose next died inside her. She was a coffin. She was his coffin in a coffin. She may have been beautiful, but she had no mirrors. Her son may have been beautiful. He had no name. Her name is your name to name your child again and again, again for 400 years. See, she will sit shiva with you when you die, no matter how many times you die. Hanel, who descended from wanderers, who descended from wanderers, who descended from wanderers, wept for them all. In lieu of flowers, pile stones on my grave. If you have no stones, stand over me and tell me I am beautiful. Very, that was really great. The Hanel writes her own obituary. I, that, I don't know, that feels like it could be a book or a chapbook, at least, of uh, poems about Hanel. That's really cool. I think it's a really fun thing to read about, definitely. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, yeah, yeah thanks a lot, Dick. Yeah, you should, definitely. I, I'd recommend it. Keep going with that. There's a Dick Westheimer with a Hanel writes her own obituary. And that is, oh, wait, we have a, one more. I forgot. Ann VW is here. Sorry, Ann. It's just hidden, hey. hidden among the others. I didn't mean to miss you out. So that Dick West wasn't. I was trying to be poetic and having Dick beginning and close, but I'm glad you. I'm glad you didn't re- think I was going to abandon you either. Thanks, Anne. It's okay. It's great to be on the show again. So, uh, and you're calling again from um, the Philippines. The Philippines. That's right. So it's now like it's three minutes past eleven in the morning. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you could join us, and uh, it's really fun to again see the sunlight out there, especially on a cold, gray, stormy day for us. Uh, we we have no snow. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> okay, so what is it? You have an obituary poem too. Yes, but as I said in my email, I rather cheated because uh, I I took an old poem that wasn't going anywhere oh, and uh, the the prompt inspired it and I realized where it should be going. You know what? That's a good so thing to mention because with the, uh, people have confessed to me with the ekphrastic challenge too that a lot of times the mm. picture will remind them of some poem that they didn't finish and then they'll finish. So you can use that too and you can use prompts for that. It's a great oh, yeah. use. There's nothing cheating about it. As long as a real <laughs> poem comes about, we are happy yeah. with whatever whatever method you choose. So oh, uh, let's hear this one. Okay. So this is called Praying an Obituary for Humanity Won't Be Necessary. Okay. Man by machines mesmerized, by device seduced. We scare ourselves witless, likes, shares, shape our souls. Propaganda run rampant, half-boiled frogs, we haven't a clue. A kid with a Tesla and no idea where the brakes are. Please God, we figure it out or step away from the vehicle before we're cooked. Heaven, hear our cry, grant us the grit to grasp. Are we mastering the mechanics of enslavement to our gadgets? or mutating into some kind of zombie amphibian. Oh, that's great. I sense a theme in this episode this week with the uh, the AI coming to take all of our our love away. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. That was great. Uh, praying an obituary for humanity won't be necessary. Me too. Thanks so much for sharing that, Anne. 
Thank you. Yep. Take care. Yeah, that was um, um, Anne uh, Van Widgerden uh, with uh, with that obituary. Thanks so much, Anne. Always a pleasure to have you on. Um, and that's going to be it for the Zoom portion of the show. A little bit, we'll do a few poems. We'll do a few poems from um, the people sent in. I have uh, one, two, three, four here. Let's see what we can get through. Okay, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'm going to end the Zoom. So if everybody on the Zoom right now, just hop over to YouTube so you can see what's going on too if you want. But I'm going to end the Zoom. Um, okay, so um, this is uh, Ted Guevara, and he says, still a week back. Is I'm still at the Rick Lupert stage with Hill. And remember, and I was actually going to work on that today too. I have a little bit of a poem that I started and never finished for uh, Rick Lupert's prompt, which is to, which was, I will die on this hill over and over again. Um, and uh, this is uh, Ted Bernal Guevara's version of that with this beautiful picture he sent of a uh, beautiful verdant field with a uh, old gnawed tree in it as well. And here is his poem, Hill. I die on this hill like I am at a fast counter waiting for the special they had plugged some time ago and I'm still waiting. They offer, the offer may have lapsed during my wait. In my thought, I had, notched, I had it notched in my hunger. On time, and am now deserving of delivery. I die on this hill, not necessarily with my inability to eat. I wait out the crave to be full of loudness again, where customer service meanders, hearing too dims. You had me in the palm of satisfaction. You blinked when you turned away. Your lashes have become thorns in their dullness. My tongue seems caught, my breath to reason. I die on this hill and wait when rendition express is exposed to be of beauty, choice, and savory. It's all in the menu. So that was uh, Ted Bernal Guevara with his, uh, his poem from last week's prompt, Hill. So thanks so much for sharing that, Ted. Always a pleasure. And maybe next week I'll get to... It's not like I'm going to do two poems, and then I'll be caught up too. But <laughs> Ted's trying the same thing. We'll, we'll race Ted to get caught up on the prompts. Um, next up here is Katie Dozier's poem. Um, <laughs> so I don't know what this means. But Katie says, I don't think my social media history deserves to rest in peace, but let's hope this at least puts it to bed. And so this is obituary for my prehistoric era of social media. And yeah, too, to grow up with social media is a, is a dangerous thing. Uh, here we go with Katie Dozier's poem. Obituary for my prehistoric era of social media. Facebook memories are third-person cringe. Why the hell did I embark on a 2009 social media binge? Katie Dozier is thinking that the world should be better. And what emo shit was that? Just a dropped feather. Fly to Twitter to report, OMG, still snowing, what weather? Hearts rain down on Insta, reel in the favorites, then a swan dive to MySpace, a virtual pool of my top friends, a beehive to pretend. So whatever the buzz on TikTok, let's agree to forgive. Let them sting their own asses. Let the damn kids outlive these shiny threads pinned to our corkboard metaverse, hung behind school desks where we write the universe, the right universe. Excellent poem that was obituary of my prehistoric era of social media. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. Don't be on social media. <laughs> it's a trap. It's a trap. Um, okay. Thanks for sharing that, Katie. And um, let's see where we're at for time. We have two more. We could do both of these. This is uh, Mike Bale sent a poem as well. Let me uh, t put this in really quickly to a uh, 
a Word doc so I can share it more easily. Um, I'm not sure where Mike Bales is today. We miss him for sure, but I'm glad he sent his poem in despite. And here's Mike Bales, A Room Saved for Me. A room saved for me. I was screaming in the front yard. My dad and mom didn't understand, and vague phrases left me feeling emptier than before. Yet I cried out, this is not who I am. I had not passed my field experience, and I lost my dreams. I was not the therapist that I said for two years I would be, but I was there for a week before I'd go back, take one more course, and settle for whatever degree I could get. My room was the same as I had left it, the bed well made after I had left for school. A desk remained as I left it, drawers filled with scraps of poems I wrote in high school, and I could, couldn't ever understand them anymore. Clouds appeared outside the window while a toy tractor laying in the corner gathered dust, and the school, high school yearbook was signed by a priest who taught catechism, and I cried out his God was not my God anymore, and the hedge by the sidewalk was trimmed, its useless branches spread across the ground. A oh, great image to end on there, Ted, or Mike. That was Mike Bales with a room saved for me. Thanks for sharing that, Mike. And one last poem, last but not least. Let's share seven, eleven, eleven after the hour. Let's share um, Maribade Carr's poem. Maribade hasn't been on for a long while. Um, and this is, is this idiocracy? Which is a question uh, many of us are asking far too often these days. Is this idiocracy? by Maribade Carr, another um, obituary poem. Here we go. Is this idiocracy? Here lies reality after a long illness, surpassed by the hands of overly confident illusion. Sounds nice until the ground beneath begins to mold, rot away from the inside, the wood soft and wavy, each step squishy and precognizant, except wholly inaccurate, Rules no longer roped or, nor velveted, tradition no longer cradled in hearts, faces never seen as symmetry, but as policy. Very interesting, Mary Ben, and great to see you again. It's been a long time since you uh, sent a poem, and I hope you can join the Zoom sometime soon, too. It's, I don't know, it's been like a year or more since uh, Mary Bade was here. Great to see you. Okay, that is it for poems people sent in. Um, and now let's, uh, I did say, can I pull up this... Um, I did say I would do this, and I think we have a little bit of time. Um, ah, my brother's dog poem. The problem is I can't remember the title exactly, but this is a poem written after a poem in Rattle, which was very fun. And there's another one, too, that was like written after the poem on page 36 of Rattle. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it, because I don't remember the title. I don't remember enough about the title. ChrisGreenRattle.com um, Brother dog we'll put that in the search engine and see okay my, so, so this is my brother Barry's dog you know what uh this is oh, he wrote after his own poem so um that's interesting so he wrote after his own poem uh i don't know i'm kind of curious about what this is because this is what i remembered in my head and let's see what we actually have. I'll read both these poems. These are both Chris Green, who is not my brother Chris Green, but is a different Chris Green, I think. I mean, I don't know. I never got a fingerprint sample or anything. But um, this is uh, My Brother Buries His Dog, and then a poem about the response to this poem. That's what it was. So a little different than what I said. I wish I could remember the, the poem on page 46. Maybe I'll, I'll Google that 
really quickly just in case. Poll on page. I think it was like 46. If I get the number right, no. Well, we'll have to look at it. Maybe next week we'll do that one. It's, just, it's hard to remember titles sometimes. But here's my brother buries his dog. For the first one, we have audio. For the second one, we don't. So I'm going to play the audio. Then I'll do the response to it. That'll be interesting. Here we go. Uh, my brother buries his dog. This is Chris Green from Rattle Number 21, way back when. My brother buries his dog. He moves furniture for a living, oversized bureaus and beds for the rich. He is big now and dumb with love that animals sense. Cats, dogs, squirrels, birds, his pygmy turtles and rabbits, tree frogs. They all take him in, nuzzle his childhood scars, forgive his bad jobs and girlfriends. The middle child who grew up telling us all to fuck off, now a grown man calls me crying, why my puppy, his great Dane is dead. He sobs and I remember how we beat him. Mom, dad, nuns, coaches, teachers, I know I did. And like animals before a storm, he has premonitions. This time a dream of me crying over Nina's corpse. He says, I want you to think about that. He says it because I'm the godless eldest son who knows everything. So we carry his huge dead dog from the vet to his truck to his backyard. He digs a hole all day, then lays her black body in the dark. Weeping, he seals her in with a last block of sod, and between the kiddie pool and the garage we embrace, he whispers, I love you, and in that moment I knew what animals know. Yeah, that was uh, My Brother Buries His Dog. Just a great poem by Chris Green. So many great lines in that and great storytelling, too. In that moment I knew what animals know. Excellent. And then this is the response and I don't remember exactly how this goes, so we'll figure it out as we go. This is called Where Poems Go. And here we go. Where Poems Go. Again, this is Chris Green, not my brother. A different Chris, I think. This is from Rattle Number 26. So this was like a year and a half later we got this poem as a submission. Um, and we kind of, I mean, it's a poem about the poem, I think. So here we go. Where Poems Go. In Tampa, Florida, Irene Ledbetter sits at her desk to write to me. She holds the magazine with my poem about her brother and his dead dog. She has two dogs herself and admits she has the habit of rescuing baby rabbits, baby birds, even hatched egg, unhatched eggs. She writes to me as a friend in a long, merry sentences, great streams of herself, and uses words like kisses and hugs. She says her father is a big man who grew up without a puppy. She tells me everything. She says Lizzie was her longtime pet chameleon she saved from a tree. She swears Lizzie knew her name and came when called to eat. She fed her mealworms and water from a leaf. Lizzie died, possibly from too much to eat. In your poem, it says, In that moment I knew what animals knew. I still talk to Lizzie today, and when I see lizards outside of my house that look like her, I know it's her telling me that she's okay. Irene has written every paragraph in different color ink, and there are stickers in the corners of cartoon bears holding hearts and stepping over rainbows. She sighs and drinks some Diet Coke as she seals the envelope. I know it is dark. Tomorrow she goes back to high school and I consider my odd lifespan and how I taught students like Irene, girls in their prison blue Catholic school uniforms. Not one now remembers my name. Not one recalls my lecture in the rabbits 
of in of mice and men so poetic i actually teared myself up when i overheard a girl in the front row turn ask her friend are my lips chapped the evenings in florida are cold grapefruit trees hold tight to their heavy fruit and the winds shake the heavy green and buggy land whether there his teeth i once saw a man on a golf course killed by lightning from a blue sky there is a hint of the sea in every suburb and instead of dirt you find sand and shells outside your door irene's hopes mingle with a scent of ocean and orange groves of her fears for puppy and the future i cry oh i cry i've got to continue to live when i read the letter again today i feel blessed to be drifting and deathless bearing up like irene so that is uh, a response poem. Are you a response poem to your own response poem. So um, that's a clever move for anybody who would like to appear in Rattle Twice. Uh, that was Where Poems Go by Chris Green, um, a poem after My Brother Buries His Dog by Chris Green, No Relation. Okay, so uh, that's going to wrap up the show for today, except for the Saiku. So let's find the Saiku in all of my windows that are open. The Saiku is right here. It's based on this story. Uh, from Science Daily, an article written in Cell. Is it in Cell? Yeah, it's in Cell, one of the most prestigious uh, journals there. And uh, this is um, courtesy of Science Daily, though, of course. The uh, Your dog's behavior is a product of their genes. Uh, from the excitable sheepdog to the aloof Shiba Inu and all breeds in between, dogs have unique and diverse behavioral traits. By analyzing DNA samples from over 200 dog breeds, along with nearly 50,000 pet owner surveys, Researchers have pinpointed many of the genes associated with the behaviors of specific dog breeds. And so, really, the dog's behavior is baked into DNA, which is how um, I think dog owners kind of know. Like, certain dogs have a certain way to be. But one of the interesting things they found was that um, one of the genes that's related to um, um, anxiety in humans is turned on and heightened in, uh, in sheep dogs, in dogs that have work, like work herding dogs and things like that rather than hunting dogs. And so they have this kind of constant anxiety about where the, the flock is, I guess, turned on by the same gene that gives us anxiety, which is just fascinating to me. Um, and, and I can relate to because our dog, we have a German Shepherd, and um, the dog, like, herds our cats. <laughs> and so, um, you know, like two cats, even for years we had two cats, and uh, the dog would try to, like, keep them in one place as if they were sheep, which was always just crazy. They literally was trying to herd cats. <laughs> and so here is the Saiku inspired by these thoughts. It's a five-line haiku, a high queen, I guess, a haikwin. And uh, it just works better in five lines. You can do that. You can do whatever you want. It's poetry. So here is, uh, here's the Saiku for this week. Uh, right about here. Old shepherd, never seen a sheep. He counts in his sleep. That is uh, this week's Saiku. Old Shepherd, never seen a sheep. He counts in his sleep. Uh, there's your Saiku for that week, and this is the show for this week. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. It has been a pleasure. Uh, next week's prompt, picked by Elaine Sexton, is right here. It's another long one. Uh, let's see. I think that the gist is really short, but the, uh, the explanation is pretty long. And so let's check this one out. This is going to be next week's prompt. Color Memory. What is your earliest memory of a color? Draft notes toward a poem starting with the first thing, the first color that comes to mind. Name it and refine this description. Write down any and all details you can think of related to this color, describing it so a reader can begin to see what you see and the circumstances around this experience. Joseph Elbers, artist, color theorist, and arts educator, wrote, If one says red, the name of the color, 
and there are 50 people listening, it can be expected that there will be 50 reds in their minds. And one can be sure that all these reds will be very different. He considered color to be passive, deceiving, and unstable. When drafting your next poem, describe the color in every action, idea, and concrete image that comes to mind. This may be a list poem, a prose poem. See what comes. And of course, that reminds me of um, the great John Stevenson one-line haiku, pretty sure my red is your red, which is just one of the great ones. Um, but an excellent poem, uh, or excellent prompt, laying off that. See what you can come up with, um, with color memory, your earliest memory of a color. Uh, thanks so much for that, for Elaine Sexton, for sharing that prompt. And thanks for a great show. It was really wonderful talking to uh, Elaine. Uh, really good stuff, good poems all around, like we said. Next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be Dion O'Reilly. And Dion's been in, in uh, Poetry Respond a couple times, um, and her newest book is Ghost Dogs. So uh, that's going to be Rattlecast number 173. We'll check that book out. Another poet I don't know a whole lot about, but it's always fun to meet new people, I think. And uh, it's even more fun to meet new poets. Um, Dion did come to one of our readings in L.A. once, uh, and so she's a really cool, really great reading. Looking forward to uh, this episode, Rattlecast number 173, Monday, December 19th, the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I will talk to you later. Good night.